Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever, whenever this finds you. This is the Sam Mickens Tomorrow Show. It's a human document for me to all of you, and I hope you enjoy it. This is our first episode, and it's also a Christmas episode. As I record this in Los Angeles, it's been raining. Our first guest on today's program is Albert Corrado. With me now is uh, Albert Corrado, running for uh, City Council District 13 here in Los Angeles. Albert, uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, I appreciate it, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Uh, really ex- excited for your new show. Um, and, and, you know, as the first guest, I'm sure I'll be back for all the milestones. So really kind of love to get myself, you know, ingratiated into a podcast. And then you're like, oh, who should I have on? Why not have Albert? So lo- love to set that standard, you know? Yeah. Well, you'll be back every Christmas, I'm sure, if not before. So <laughs> awesome. Um, how is how is the uh, how is the season finding you now? You know, it's okay. I don't know. You know, there's, um, it's interesting because now I feel like every, every winter we're having to worry about a spike in cases. And I think this year I I have more people around me who've gotten COVID than, than ever before. Um, fortunately they're, they're all pretty mild cases, but I mean, you know, this is, uh, had it been in the early days of the pandemic, without any vaccines or boosters, I think it'd be worse, but, uh, yeah, I got a few friends right now who are, who are isolating. And so that's kind of, um, yeah, it's a little, little scary for sure, but you know, I'm, I'm boosted and all that stuff. So I'm hoping to, um, you know, keep it, uh, keep it safe until we, we can kind of, the numbers can kind of drop. So, you know, it's, it's okay. You know, year, this year has been kind of a wild year, but, um, uh, you know, campaign life is, is kind of wild anyway. So even if we're, there were not a global pandemic, I think campaigning would still be, uh, stressful and fun and rewarding and sure. all those things. So, yeah. 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 What, how, how have things been on the campaign kind of for you, you know, through the, uh, and we should say you're running against Mitch O'Farrell, a long time incumbent, uh, not a great friend of the people. Um, but but what has the process of of campaigning been like for you through all these kinds of different lockdowns and unlockdowns and you know i mean i think because we started the campaign in the you know in the pandemic we i announced in in september of 2020 um there was already kind of these things in place where it made it easier to to do things you know obviously with zoom and just social distancing and all that it was it was a lot of the campaign was really online for the first few months every every fundraiser that we had every live stream obviously everything was moved on to online so that was definitely you know it just felt like an extension of all the organizing work that i had been doing and being on zooms and not really being able to see people so it was interesting when we finally got out into the streets and started canvassing and talking to people um i i missed that you know and so i mean so so, you know it's kind of good and and i think the pandemic is is always kind of you know, making it so you have to figure stuff out, you know, where we want to do in-person stuff. And then you're like, well, are are our, you know, supporters and volunteers going to be uncomfortable with this? Is this okay? There's a lot of that, those kinds of questions. And I feel like every few months we're having to uh, re rethink, you know, whether or not we want to do stuff. So it's been, it's been as everything is stressful because of the pandemic, but also, I don't know, I think it's forced us to be kind of creative in how we do outreach to people. And, and as a guy who's super online, 
and really loves and is good at doing stuff online. It's, it's, um, that's the fairly simple part is kind of coming up with stuff to post and doing a live stream. Cause I love to talk. I love to chat. So if you put, put me in front of a camera in front of a live stream, I can, I can kind of talk. So a seven hour thing for me is, I wouldn't say easy, but certainly not as difficult as other people. I can fill time. I have, you know, I, I, I spend a lot you of have my, some intestinal fortitude. Yeah. yeah and you're all, you're going I'll, the distance. If definitely. You but also I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm, a, I'm always a guy who's, who's thinking of ideas. You know, I host a podcast, I run a yeah. campaign, I do, you know, just have my own personal social media stuff. So I'm always thinking of ideas of how to engage with people, how to, you know, the, the cool thing about running a campaign is you can kind of do whatever you want, you know, like you can, you can, style the posters, however you want. You can call events, whatever you want. You can, you can theme your emails to kind of whatever you want. No one's really telling you that there are any rules, except that, you know, you have to put this disclaimer on here or, or any or stuff like that. You know, there, yeah. there are rules that are set by the ethics commission, but no one from ethics is going to say, well, you can't really name your event that because it doesn't fit. You can kind of do whatever you want. So it gives me the creative freedom to flex that muscle too, you know? Right. And that, that freedom also might just be really refreshing for people to experience because it's so rarely uh, utilized, right, in campaigns. So many campaigns just kind of, I mean, until really very recently, a vast majority of them really kind of stay within these aesthetic and kind of uh, whatever parameters of decorum and uh, perceived no, um, structural guidelines, gutters, whatever you want to say. Yeah, no. And, and I mean, I'm definitely, you know, every time I see people running for office, um, whether at a local or, or federal level that are just kind of doing the Dem playbook, the, the sort of normal, you know, fundraising emails, you know, that, that stuff obviously serves a purpose, but for me, I'm just like, why would we, why would anybody run for office and not try to make it an extension of themselves? You know, you're running, it's a weird thing to be running as, as a person, right? I'm, I'm running as Al for LA and people are looking at me as this, this person. So I'm like, of course I want to make it part of who I am. Now I don't want to just take other existing templates and, and, you know, plug myself in there. I mean, obviously that the, there's some room to do that for, but for the most part, everything that we do on the campaign is informed by like me and a few people thinking, okay, what, what makes sense? What is, is sort of fun, but serious. And how do we play within those borders of like, you know, being sort of irreverent, but also being, you know, we really actually care about this stuff. We're not here to, you know, this isn't, um, uh, a parody, uh, you know, a city council run, but I am a silly guy. I am a guy who likes to have fun. So then it's kind of, you know, you know kind of pushing those two things together until you kind of get a good, a good uh, mix of, of, you know, dreadfully serious about the issues, but also we're having fun. You know, we just did a, a music fundraiser in November. That was uh, my take on an old punk rock uh, concert flyer. You know, going to punk shows, you always saw the cool flyers. And so I want to do, I want to do my own version and we'll have Mitchell Farrell with his eyes crossed out and a missing tooth. And, you know, there, there's just kind of this fun extension of, of me and, and this freedom that I can kind of play. In. And I love here's it. my, here's my question, Al, did you actually go down to a uh, Kinko's? at like 11 30 p.m at night to make these flyers or were well, the, was it a digital i mean you there's no you know there's no shame in these days I no think. no no so actually it's funny that uh, i have a friend um his name's jeff and he runs this um shop called tomorrow today 
that's in Chinatown. And so oh, he, yeah, I know. yeah, he's a leftist. He's very with the cause. And so he usually uh, gives us good deals on flyers. And so we went and printed out a bunch of those and we went all up and down sunset and, and flyer them. So, you know, it's always good to have um, someone who's down for the cause doing posters and he's done posters for, you know, any number of, of organizations and, and candidates. And he's, yeah, they're, they're good people over there. And I, I went to high school with his, uh, with his partner, Zoe. So yeah, good stuff. Actual, uh, actual community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Al, um, police abolition is, is kind of the most central issue to your campaign, uh, for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, you're very outspoken about it and you're very outspoken about being an abolitionist and, and, and taking that stance and not kind of existing in a, in a, you know, um, equivocating another world about any of these issues. Um, so can you, in a, in a, in a, you know, in a somewhat condensed way, can you describe to everyone and you know this may include you know i i'm sure you encounter these people a lot you're running i i encounter them just in my normal life but you know there are a lot of people who are very against police violence and are very against the police killings that they you know have, have seen and become more and more aware of in the last several years but um there are people who say my but my but my father is a cop and he's a good guy or but you know uh, i'm a fireman and the cops or i've seen them only be good guys or or, you know, just a boomer who doesn't understand or doesn't, uh, isn't, isn't as, isn't as uh, congenial to the, the idea or even just the words police abolition. Can you kind of describe why it's for you the, the, the correct and only path? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think obviously people, people who know me and maybe have read up about me know that my sister was killed by LAPD here in Los Angeles. And so, you know, obviously that is a big driver uh, of why I, I believe that. But I think as, as I've, you know, come in contact with other people who've been affected by police violence, um, people who just don't want police around for, for whatever reason, you know, you sort of begin, begin to learn that, that, you know, policing is, is, connected to everything else. So if we're talking about cities, right, we're talking about Los Angeles, a giant city that is known around the world, that is looked to as, as you know, whatever, a paradise, a place people want to come. But we have this problem called the LAPD, we all, and we always have. And even if you watch all these 90s movies, even 80s movies, you hear, you know, a bunch of jokes about the LAPD and how brutal they are. And, you know, every, you know, Rodney King beating became sort of a punchline after a while. And so, yeah. you know, to, to, when you think about that, these are fun, sort of weird throwaway jokes in movies, but they, they kind of speak to something that has been kind of rotting this city from, in, you know, from the inside is, is the LAPD. And it happens in tons of other city. NYPD is awful. Uh, you know, they're one of the most murderous forces in the entire nation. And so when I talk to people about this, it's, it's always kind of like, well, like, we need to move away from from the the really good propaganda that the police have been able to disseminate. You know, we have to move away from the books and the movies and the TV shows that have told us forever and ever that cops are the good guys. Because if we really look at the numbers, if we really look at the people who've been killed by police, how much money the cops spend in all of these cities to not prevent crime, to not make people safe, to basically just kill people, drain a city's resources, we then have to think, well, what is the logical, what is the answer to this? You know, it, it can't be 
giving them more money. And if you break, you know, I, I, I take a two pronged approach when talking to people, there is the approach that, you know, it's, it's the me telling the story about my sister, Melly, who was killed at the Trader Joe's in Silver Lake by LAPD. You know, they fired into the store and, and killed her while they were chasing a suspect. You talk about Daniel Hernandez, who was killed by, by you know, a responding officer while he was having uh, a mental health crisis. You talk about, you know, Anthony Vargas, who was killed by the Sheriff's Department. You talk about these people, these families that I've come to know, these stories that I've heard, the pain, you know, you can hear it in your voice and hear it in you describing that. The other approach is, if that, you know, because some people, you could tell them a story about your your loved one or, or so many people who've been killed by police, and they just aren't moved by that because because they're they have found a way to justify uh, that ha that happening. You know, there, there are any number of reasons why they think those shootings are justified. The other one is um, the aspect of of, of money of, of be people being taxpayers and and wanting their money to be used in a way that they agree with right i mean budgets are moral documents and all that so you talk to people about well are are the police really using the money we give them and we give them more money pr pretty much each year are they using it in a way what you know what material gains does a community get do we get safer does crime go down do, do people right. less people get killed or burgled or robbed or whatever um so it's it's about you know proving to people that this this current way that we do things has not been helping at all if anything you know we have become less and less safe and and police have really kind of signaled that they have no interest in protecting us they only want to protect corporations rich people rich homeowners and so i think on the the level of an, of people being organizers and abolitionists it's it's having to prove to people that what we're saying is true when you get present them with all the facts when you tell them all the things that, that that police are responsible for, then if they give you the chance to start taking money away from the police and removing them from our everyday lives, then that's the proof is, is that we will get safer because police only exist to justify their own existence. They they create the, the issue, they, cre they escalate, they create the danger. They created the danger when my sister was killed. They create the danger in so many situations. And so it's about removing them from libraries and schools and all these places where they've just popped up for no reason uh, under the guise of public safety. And it's saying, well, imagine if you didn't go, if you go into the library, didn't mean coming into contact with a heavily armed person who has been told by the state that that killing people is okay, that, that whatever they do will be protected by qualified immunity, by police unions, by all of these people. So you have to realize that all of these things are working in concert. Police are not only held up and, and not held accountable by their own people within the, the ranks, but they are, they're helped by city attorneys, by district attorneys, by prosecutors, by so many people whose job it is to make sure that police keep control and, and keep suppressing uh, the, the people who are now starting to wake up and realize, oh, you not only are you taking our money and killing our people, you just don't care because we have, as a society, made it okay for you to kill someone and get away with it. So abolition to me is not scary. Abolition to me is actually the most um, optimistic sort of outcome uh, that we could we could reach from the current way that we're we, you know the, the current way society is going that's the best case scenario to me the worst case scenario is we have reformers come in here and say that we're, we're going to help you know keep police accountable we're going to work with them because police 
have proven over and over that they do not want to be held accountable. They don't want to work with communities. They don't want to work with people to hold themselves accountable because they see themselves as, as the, the protectors, as the people who are here to tell us how to live our lives. Yet they can do whatever they want. So I think it's, 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 a you know, abolition is rooted in, it should be rooted in love. We talk about destruction a lot. We talk about, you know, doing away with these current uh, structures. And, and obviously that, that has to happen before we build something new, but building something new is what, what the end game is, is making people safe because that's something that we need as, as a society, but doing it in a way that's informed by love and not by, you know, punitive measures and, and the carceral mindset. Yeah. Um, something you mentioned actually, <clears throat> Albert was something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, the, the cultural aspect of kind of, um, our communal national sense of police, uh, you know, you're talking about the movies and TV shows and, and so on and so forth that, that are lionizing, you know, there's also so many examples in very, very popular culture of, you know, the inverse of these, these evil and murderous and, 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 you know, uh, grifting police officers from whatever the Godfather to, to training day or whatever. And, and I feel like, but I feel like there's a real cognitive dissonance for people, for some people, maybe older folks or folks just, you know, uh, who have kind of grew up uh, having a different relationship to the, to the police than, than maybe you or I. Um, but it feels like there's a real cognitive dissonance where people can really enjoy these kinds of fictional characters and, and accept them as reality in these in these fictions but then when you try to explain there are people like this in real life it's um it, it doesn't really compute for some folks yeah it's 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 wild that you know th that stuff is so prevalent i mean i you know i i and i'm not going to sit here and say that i still don't watch training day or rush hour or these movies where you know the cop is is doing stuff that's way outside Probably of his tenant or whatever yeah you know. you know where he's doing stuff that's technically illegal but you know he's doing it to save the day because i mean again that that you know the the other falsehood of those of those premises is that police actually want to do something good and i mean you know like everybody gets hooked you know um bogged down with this good cop thing oh well what about the good cops and like if you're part of a system that's causing harm you know, I don't, I don't really see that you, you're not complicit in some way. You may not, you know, be the one pulling the trigger, but you're the one falsifying paperwork or, or corroborating, you know, a statement that, you know, of something that never happened. And so, you know, it's funny to see those movies and, and now as, as an abolitionist, you know, maybe I wasn't an abolitionist when I was, you know, 10 years old when Rush Hour came out, but now yeah. watching it like that, I'm like, man, these guys are really just going off book. And, and, you know, I feel like you, the wild thing is that, that in the, that I think the movies kind of paint this as like, well, yeah, they're going to be, you know, it's going to be fine because they did the right thing. And I, I feel like that's actually the most truthful part of the movie is that like these people will be commended for doing that. Yeah. You know, maybe you killed a bunch of civilians and blah, 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 but you saved the day and you saved, you know, some rich white man or whatever the case is, and you're going to be given a medal. And that's actually the part that, that actually rings true. None of, none of the other stuff rings true. Cops don't actually wake up every day wanting to like fix the streets. They, they wake up, you know, Oh, I'm making a hundred grand a year. Let me go and waste some, some time and, and rack in this overtime.
Another question for you, Albert, is, you know, a lot of our friends um, across what could broadly be described as the left or a lot of, you know, activists uh, will really take issue with the efficacy of, of, of even putting your energy into electoral politics or of, um, or of seeking office. And, and there are some, uh, right, who would say that the person running for political office is kind of automatically um, self-selecting themselves for a lot of compromise or for, or for not being effective in, in the most, um, you know, in, in the most material ways. So, so <laughs> given that, um, what, what would you say to those folks or, or for you, why is it, why has it become the right uh, path to, to run and to seek office and to try to work? You know, within within a democratic party or within you know the the um, political establishment that exists. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I I, I do share some of those um, you know thoughts about electoralism and and how you know you're you're kind of seeing it right now the, the worst of it uh, at the federal level. Um, the way that you know we can get bogged down and like, oh, this person doesn't want to vote for this, and it's all about like you know, stoking their constituent base. And you see that, but we also see it here in, in local politics because you see people, you know, running all across the, the, the county, um, you know, in the city, whether it's city council or, you know, Congress or whatever, you see people running on what they think is, is going to help them win. I think that's the, 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 the sort of, um, one of my biggest issues with electoralism is it, it sort of allows you and sort of encourages you to run on something that maybe you don't necessarily believe in, but that will get you the most votes, which is obviously the, the, the goal in electoralism. So I do have issues with that, but the reason I, I, I kind of came to the conclusion to run is because, you know, if we had people running who actually had not only lived experience, but, you know, st stayed true to their principles, then we could actually change uh, the, the way that that electoralism works. And if we think about it, you know, uh, local politics, city council and stuff like that has more to do with your everyday life than federal politics that too. you know, like your life is affected way more immediately by what city council chooses to do. And that's everything from, you know, parking uh, meters to police budget to, you know, wh which things they fund and which what things they, they don't fund. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are finally coming to that realization. And so to me, it made sense to kind of, if, if my ultimate goal is to abolish LAPD, get unhoused people um, out off the streets and, and into, you know, um, permanent supportive housing, then, then this is, the number one thing I can do right now. Now, yeah. if someone came to me and said, you know what, a few million of us tomorrow are going to take the streets and we're going to start a revolution or whatever, I'm all for that. You know, I, I I don't think this is these are flawed things that we are we take part in that are not ultimate, you know, that are going to work slower than we want them to. If I'm to get on, you know, city council and abolish the LAPD, I have to have other people around me who are going to do that. So it's a matter of getting, you know, I, I always think. If anything, I want my my campaign to be an inspiration to other abolitionists, other people who are running, who want to run, because it then says if the more of us run, if a hundred of us run next time, the chances of one of us getting in or more, you know, a few of us are are, are more that you know that they're higher. So the more people we have in engaging in this, the more radical people, the more people who are who have lived experience um, that are are coming for these seats the better chance that we have for taking. And then we can actually affect change in a way that isn't 
let me do a study on this. Let me run that by someone. Let me run it by my rich, um, you know, my rich donors or my, my rich uh, lobbyists or whatever. So, you know, I think that, that it is flawed inherently. It, 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 it won't, it, it doesn't, it's not the end all. It's not, it's not the end all and be all. It's, it's a thing that, that works, you know, to some degree that we're hoping to make work more. And, and, you know, let's face it, the city can do things uh, very quickly when it wants to, uh, when it's to build something that is going to displace a lot of people or give the police a bunch of money or whatever. They or can do hypothetically that Hypothetically a future Olympic games or something. Exactly. Yeah. Right. They can move uh, heaven and earth to get things done for those things. But when it comes to actually expanding transit and doing something for people that, that that only serves the greater good and not someone's pocketbook or someone's status or whatever they they take you know so long you know think about the transit projects that are are oh in 2028 this thing will be done when we know that it could be done sooner but but the city just has no desire to do that and so i think that you know to me this has always been one avenue of many that i could take to, to accomplish the goals that, that I've set out for myself. And, you know, I'm part of People City Council, which is a, you know, a local sort of direct action mutual aid group. Um, you know, I helped found it with a few friends. So there, that's another avenue. You know, there are many other avenues you can take to get to police abolition. But to me, at the time, it just seemed like the most sort of efficient one, the one that would get me into a seat of power where you could really actually write legislation that will 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 kind of kneecap the police state and and be able to you know you'll be able to pass it and make it happen super quick because the city will will approve um you know a skyscraper that'll displace hundreds of people and send them onto the streets um without blinking an eye they won't cut the police budget without it being a giant fight and then they'll somehow f figure out a way to give them more money if that ever even happens you know it happened last year with the 150 million dollars that they they cut quote unquote and that money's been given back and now LAPD wants a 12% increase so you know they, it's a flawed thing but but to me it still should serve a purpose and the moment they say it doesn't and we should start something new then you know I'm all for that too to, to step into other other arenas of life for a moment, you you have a show, uh, 818s <laughs> about the valley, right? I do 818s and heartbreak. It's it's a uh, it's my little my little fun thing that I do, and it's it's uh, I'm very really passionate about it. Yeah, and I, I I grew up not in the valley or not in that valley. I grew up, but uh, but I was in the 818 area code in Pasadena. Um, uh, but I'm curious to just hear briefly, kind of what that show what your concept of the Valley is and its meaning and what, you know, what you guys are kind of doing there. Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, I, I moved from uh, Koreatown when I was six, my parents got divorced and, you know, my mom moved me and my sister Melly to the Valley and um, it was where I grew up. It's where I had all of my formative experiences, you know, uh, middle school, high school, um, went through puberty, you know, had, had my first major loss, got my first kiss, all that sort of stuff. And it's always been, I don't know, the Valley's always been this interesting place that like, you know, it's, it's right next door to LA. You know, it's, it's what I, I call it. Um, it's sort of like a mill town, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a town that is next to the industry where yeah. some of the people who work in that industry live. Um, it was very common to see people who you would see on TV shows or movies in the Valley because that's where the studios were. That's where for a long time, it was always seen as the cheaper option than LA because, or, you know, LA proper as they call it, uh, but, you know, and now it's maybe not, but it also has a, an interesting rich history of, 
of, of just, you know, building, redlining, um, transit, neighborhood councils came out of the valley, you know, all of these things that that sort of inform the city and, and politics and all that, a lot of it can be traced to the valley or a lot of important people who've played important roles in the in the in the you know history of LA have come from the valley. Um, and especially, you know, we 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 like to talk about the historical context. You know, there's been a valley secession movement that that kind of it's kind of got some steam recently but for for years in the in the 90s was was huge people wanted it to be its own city to be its own thing so we get into the nitty-gritty of that we get into the political stuff sometimes i would say the most things that the most of the time that we talk about um with the stuff we talk about is is um you know our favorite shopping centers our memories of the valley what it was like to grow up there in the shadow of of hollywood right it's like i grew up in north hollywood so it's like oh we're north hollywood we're not hollywood we're north hollywood but it was this sort of special strange place that is in a ton of movies that is used um yeah. in, in movies from you know i mean 40s and the 50s even in the 30s to, to recent ones, you know, and, and so we like to talk about, you know, we want to be serious, but we also want to be fun and be silly. And so one episode will be uh, Sherman Oaks Castle Park, where, you know, we've gone to play um, putt putt golf. And then the next will be, oh, the man's mini golf. A lot of mini golf. A lot of mini golf. Yeah. And, and, and it's like, uh, then the next episode will be, well, let's talk about the Manson family and how they they hold up in a ranch in, in Chatsworth. Another will be, you know, the Valley Secession movement. So we try to just kind of come up with ideas of what we think people want to hear. Like, because people love to hear our nostalgic takes on places that they love because mm -hmm. they think about their own memories, but then other people want to hear about like, oh, what's the weird history of this place that I grew up in? You know, what, what kind of weirdos came through here? What kind of weirdos and, and, and maybe bad people shape the Valley to what it is today. And it's a place that is constantly um, in flux. You know, they're constantly tearing stuff down, building stuff. And so I think it's the most fascinating place so in the world. It's a liminal, it's a fluid liminal space for sure. Exactly. So yeah, we do that. And uh, we get, we do episodes every Tuesday and um, I host it with, with two friends who I met on Twitter um, and we're all kind of similar ages and, and have, you know, similar experiences, but we're different enough. I, I host it with two, you know, white, uh, white kids, uh, white Jewish kids from the Valley. And, you know, I give the perspective of the, the Latin X uh, person who lived in, in other parts parts of the valley that that sometimes get overlooked like panorama city and arlita sure. and stuff like that so yeah it's a it's a it's a passion of mine we're coming up on our on our first year of, of being a show and uh, we keep growing which is cool and, and here's a cool thing so many people in media and journalism and all that stuff are from the valley so it's it's sort of cool to like all of these people who are now making names for themselves are like, yeah, you know, I grew up in Canoga Park or here. And so it's kind of dope that that we 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 breed uh, a, a kind of good form of people. A lot of a lot of big athletes have come out of here, too. Yeah. What is, would you say? Give me your top your top few uh, children of the valley. Who are your who are your your biggest valley heroes? If you have? I mean, obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson. Hmm, yeah. You know, he he and he just made a movie set in the valley. Um I've been, oh, on a you know. heavy, I've been on a heavy uh, Daniel Day-Lewis kick the last week, week and a half, for some reason. It just yeah, came, definitely. It came back to me again. It called me again. So I watched Gangs in New York, which terrible aside from him, but, uh, you know, he's he's fun. But yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson, <laughs> that's a good one. That's yeah, a good he's, he's good. 
Um, let me think. I'm trying to think of uh, other people because I'm thinking about like I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of, of Frank Zappa, but he did <laughs> he did like do a lot well, of now, stuff in the valley. He's, but he's he went to PCC in Pasadena, right? Yeah, I mean, but, like but the he, Van Halens. Yeah, and he like he but he did that. You know, he put basically the valley on the map in the '80s, which is kind of a wild thing. So technically, maybe not from the valley, uh, but also, but also just kind of fuck Frank Zappa, right? I mean, I, I don't I don't like his music. I think he's kind of boring. <laughs> Daniel LaRusso, of course. That's a big Valley hero. Daniel LaRusso, who's that? Remind me again. You know, he won the uh, All-City uh, Karate Championship back in uh, <laughs> whenever that was. <laughs> You know, I think uh, the the Bad Religion, all of those dudes grew up in like Woodland <laughs> Hills. You know, I love those guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, from local people that, that that you might know, Molly Lambert from from just Twitter. She's a big uh, like a journalist and part of uh, some local orgs and stuff. She's yeah. she's from the Valley uh, pretty hard. And you know, I mean, they have just kind of. Oh, you know what? Another big one is uh, Megan Markle. She grew up in the Valley, and she talked about it recently in one of her interviews. She worked at a place called Humphrey Yogurt, which is a yogurt chain, <laughs> a yogurt cool. chain in the Valley. Yeah. That's the coolest yeah, and, thing. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard about Meghan Markle, actually. Yeah. Is that and and also Humphrey Yogurt. Yeah. And also going back to, to Licorice Pizza, uh, the Heim sisters from the band Heim, oh, or Heim, Heim yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They, they all went to, to schools in the Valley. They grew up there. So those are, you know, I mean, also throw big, a rock uh, at Bernie, any, Bernie folks. Those, those exactly names. yeah 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 i mean every everybody kind of came through there and especially in the early days of hollywood there was so much open space that like dw griffith's not a guy who i like or, or condone sure but filmed some of birth of a nation in the valley so it's this this place that is kind of it's sort of shapeless and formless in a way but also has its own character you know it's like you can use it in so many different ways like that also makes sense for a place yeah the place that's in so many movies has a location right is that it's just adaptable and kind of malleable to to the uses but go ahead yeah yeah no i was saying and also like you watch a movie like terminator 2 and that's all mm. up and down the valley and you're like yo that's why it's so cool because you can just kind of make it look like other places and so yeah i, I mean you know that, that that's a you oh my wait have you not seen it no, I've seen it. I just okay. mean in general at any time. Oh I'll my watch, God. I watch it's Terminator. So it's so good. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the Valley, you know, the Valley, I stay repping the Valley. I know the Valley made me who I am. And, you know, I, I grew up, um, you know, as, as a kid in the Valley, my mom was, was not, you know, we were kind of broke a lot of the time and, you know, she struggled with her own things, but that was where I, you know, did all of my stuff. And it really informed my view on, on the city because I was spending time, between the valley, you know, with my mom and then, you know, little Armenia where my dad lived or, or wherever he chose to move. It was always kind of in the, in the vicinity of Hollywood or, or Echo Park or whatever. So it was, you know, it was kind of interesting to see the, the difference in, in how the valley did stuff and how, how, you know, the city LA proper did stuff. And so I think it really had a, a lasting effect on, on who I, I was to become is, is watching, you know, feeling this underlying ten, racial tension in the Valley sometimes kind of inform me into, you know, who I am today. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, LA is definitely, uh, it's a city made up of kind of, I mean, it's literally a city made up of these other cities, right. But there are kind of these composite different kind of 
regional spaces that have their own governance and their own cultural stuff. And it's, and it's, uh, yeah, the Valley or, you know, Pasadena where I grew up is a different city, a whole different thing, but it's still, you know, LA kind of absorbs everything. Right. So you were in the San Gabriel Valley. Huh? I was in the San Gabriel. Valley. Yeah, that's right. There you go. Shout out. <laughs> but a lot of it is, is sort of smothered in this hope of like, but maybe things will get better, but maybe, maybe, this isn't all there is and, and we can get past it. And so I think that it's the same that people think about uh, things like abolition or things that, that seem really hard and, and can really kind of, um, you know, beat you down. It's like, Oh, it's, you know, what's so whatever it's impossible. It's, it's whatever it's dumb. We should just focus on other stuff. Why, why keep wasting your time? And it's like, no, th there's a hopefulness to that. And so I think that, you know, you, if you take the punk rock, which was like, you know, I hate authority. I hate the way the system treats people. I hate, you know, and I was listening to, you know, British bands who are making records in austerity era England. I had no idea what they were talking about, right. about being on the dole or whatever, but you're taking this raw power, this raw energy of people who are pissed at the government, pissed at the people who are, who are keeping them down. You take the, the, you know, the and largely and poor largely. Right. I mean, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. not, not the clash, but in, but in most cases <laughs> or whatever, right? Yeah, and exactly. You're, they're living on council estates and, and all that. So you're taking that, then you take Nine Inch Nails, you take this, this really introspective, really hard kind of like aggressive take on, on the world. And I'm, I'm angry and the world owes me and everyone's done me wrong. And then you sort of mix that with Connor Oberst of like, yes, let's talk about how we're feeling. Let's talk about uh, how, what, what's kind of making us feel bad, but then let's also look forward to a, a newer day where, where this, where this may not be our, our lot in life anymore. And so I think those are kind of the three big sort of eras of, of my, my musical life is, is, is the anger, the pain, the, the hatred for authority and, and the system um, to then kind of synthesize that into like, you know, we never shy away from talking about stuff in a way that people uh, understand and, and, the, and, and things that, you know, that may, might seem bleak, but we're ultimately saying, well, here is how we think um, this, we're, we're going to be able to help you through this and get ourselves to, to a better spot. And I mean, what, what is, what is music if not, you know, a manual on how to get through your feelings, you know, what is, what is, you know, everybody has albums that kind of help them through a rough time. And, and we look to those albums to like, you know, sometimes I, I, I throw myself back into, uh, the downward spiral by nine inch nails, because I want to get back to the, to those feelings that I was feeling when I was 14 and 15. Um, because it taught me so much, you know, it taught me, it wasn't just like, Oh, you know, these songs that I love and they sound cool. It's like, no, it really was kind of getting me in touch with, with who I was and give, giving a voice to the feelings I was feeling of, of helplessness and all that. So I think actually I, I have thought about music and how it fits into this because it really is sort of apropos that like, I am now running on what I'm running on because you know, we, we have to, we have to act as if the world is still able to be saved. You know what I mean? That that's ultimately what it comes down to is like, we can't, if we, if we sort of allow for any concessions and I think, you know, we, we've lost the, the fight before we're even um, in office. Great, Albert. My last, this is going to be my last question. Then we can, and then we can do any kind of Christmas wishes, shout outs, dedications. <laughs> um, as we've been talking, uh, today i've been looking at your thumbnail and, and it's uh it's the uh, courtroom sketch of <laughs> uncle junior yes. 
what what is what does Uncle Junior mean to you, Albert? I, you know, I, I just think Uncle Junior was one of those guys, man. He was such a he just never, you know, he never thought that that he had it had it right. You know, he never kind of um cherished what he had. You know, he was he just kind of took life for granted, you know. And I mean, I think that that show is so, so good. And I think he's one of the most interesting characters because of the, the way they play him. He's so bitter. He's so angry. He's so like, oh, like, you know, put upon, like, I should have been boss. I should have done that. So I, I love him because he's just one of those guys that like, you know, it's that, that classic thing of, and, and they say it in the show, right? He's like, Tony says, you're like a woman uh, holding a Virginia ham under her uh, arm and crying because she has no bread. It's a, right. the classic story of a guy who like, I mean, not to say that he wasn't put through stuff in the series or whatever, but like sure. he had it pretty well. He made it out of, he made it through that life without being killed or whatever. He was semi well-respected, had money or whatever, and just never left well enough alone. And so I, that's why I think he's, to me, he's probably, one of my favorite characters, definitely top three. I think I think he's top three for me, and I don't I don't just say that because his first name is my last name. Right, right, right. Uh, so, Albert, it's it's Christmas time. Are there any uh, calls to action? Are there any? Um... Anything you want to tell the people to, to check out to help uh, alongside your campaign, your mutual aid, and anything else here in the city of? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we're 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 kind of um, entering almost entering crunch time. Uh, the the primary is in June, June seventh to be exact of next year. Um, so yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to come help us um, do what we do, you know, uh, we we just kind of started we we started dropping our policy planks on our um, website that's uh, alpharla.com uh you're really kind of fleshing out what we're running on abolition housing all that stuff um check that out follow us on on instagram alpharla2022.com or sorry alpharla2022 um and and you know and, and volunteer come out i mean i think that my ultimate wish for people is not only just to volunteer um and donate to the campaign or whatever i think it's it's I, i've always been a big advocate of people getting involved in stuff um whether that's mutual aid with an organization, whether it's even going to an action, a protest, uh, joining a tenants union or something like that. I think that the more people that are a part of this fight, uh, because it's a big fight and, and it doesn't always look the same, you know, it, it, you kind of have to find your own way in, in this, in this sort of ecosystem of, of organizations and groups and all that. And so if you want to join up, if you think that you want to make a difference in some way when and you can do that by joining you know obviously political campaigns and all that but you can also do it by by joining organizations that are doing good work you know i when i first started i was going to you know sila which is a a homeless or a outreach organization i was i was showing up to no olympics meetings which is an anti olympic meet, uh, olympic um organization so it's about kind of finding out where you think you belong and using your talents um your skills uh for the movement whether that's like me the, you know you're you're able to talk at length about a subject and convey it to people that's something that is valuable you know if you're a good graphic designer if you're a good you know 
whatever you what you're a good you know comms person you you know how to write copy or whatever if you have that, incredible physical strength no then i mean well listen well we yeah. will find a way a way to use that at some point absolutely but i i do think that i think it's people should keep getting involved and stay activated because i think there were a lot of people who were activated after george floyd was killed and then kind of dropped off and i think there were definitely some people who thought because joe biden won that that everything was done and we were out of the woods and obviously joe biden has proven that he's he doesn't want to help us and he doesn't want to get anything under control or cancel student debt so i think it's up to us to kind of make our own way and and you know write the future that we want and so what you know the way you do that is is joining a good organization that you care about and but as long and, as you give a chance to a few things and figure out where you belong i think that only makes us stronger and it only makes it harder for the police state and for all the people who are trying to bring us down uh, to win because they are, they are threatened by us. You know, this, my campaign for city council has been posted about on these pro LAPD uh, Instagram accounts with thousands of followers saying, Oh, look at this guy, Albert, he's running for city council. He hates cops. We need to rally behind Mitchell Farrell. So obviously, you know, it means we're making a difference that people are scared of what's coming of, of us, coming for their money and all that. So again, the more people we have uh, who can use their talents for good, um, then I think that, that we'll be in a better spot. So that's my big Christmas wish, you know, join, you know, join us at Alpha LA, donate if you have the, the, the means to do so. You know, this is not um, a cheap thing to do. Running for office costs money. I have people that I pay and it's, um, it's a full-time thing, but also join an organization talk to people in your building, you know, organize them into a tenants union. Don't let landlords take advantage of you. Uh, do what you can to fight back against the state because they have proven over and over again, even in the face of a global pandemic, that they they are not going to save us. So really what, what it comes down to is we have to save ourselves. God bless us, everyone. That's right. All right, Albert. Uh... Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for being my first guest. And uh, we'll, we'll be speaking with you, I'm sure long before then, but next Christmas, of course, if not before. And uh, stay safe. And, and uh, June 7th, 2022 is the election, primary election, and, and everybody should uh, check it out. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you, Tim. Can I show it's, you what it looks like out the window here? Please, yeah, go ahead. Oh. It's, I don't know if you can see, like it's really coming down right now. It's a real winter wonderland out there. It, it is. How oh, nice. You're in Michigan? I'm in Michigan. Yeah. Well, that's a snowy place. Yeah, I'm in Bad Axe. Um, oh, Bad Axe. Huh? Oh, Bad Axe? Where my people come from. Yeah. The, the axe broke. And they settled here. That's the deal. It was the bad axe. They're like, we got a bad. bad we we have a bad axe here. We better just stop. Better moving. stop. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that story. That's bad axe, Michigan, huh? Um, all the um, all the like school sports teams mascot is the hatchets. Um, <laughs> That's cool. So not even it wasn't even like a large axe. I mean, I don't really know. I also feel like that story is probably not true, sure. but that's like the story of the town. Um,
but yeah, so I grew up going to this town, but I never lived here. I see, I see. Well, Renee, thank you for joining me. Um, from Bad Axe, Michigan. Um, I know you from many years ago, music, New York, and uh, we're talking today because you have a new record that I've really been enjoying. Um, it's, it's a Christmas record, but also largely a record of original material, right? Um, mm -hmm. So kind of a hybrid, you know, something we don't see that often, which is, you know, a real record kind of, and also a Christmas record at once. Is that fair to say, or how would you, how would you describe this album? The album's called Unsettled Magic. Yeah, I think you don't see albums like this very often because when I was working on it, I kept telling people, I was like, there's going to be a very narrow Venn diagram of people who are into this album because mm. it's already like, like Chris, anything in the zone of Christmas music is pretty passe. And then I feel like, I mean, cause it's mostly an album about grief and loss and like, there's a lot of songs that reference Christmas. And I feel like there's kind of a wintry mood to the album. Like I very much made it with the idea of it being something for people to listen to in winter. Um, but I don't feel like, I mean, it like is and isn't a Christmas album. Um, like, cause there's, there's a lot of songs where it's, it's mostly about grief and loss. Yeah. Is um, that, but is the that... holidays are like a time where for a lot of us, those feelings can be kind of magnified. Sure. It's a time where they're more acute. Um, mm -hmm. is that, is that something that you considered at all the, I mean, I don't know what your, at Renee, I don't really know what your personal religious, uh, you know, standing is, but is it interesting within kind of what the, what the religious connotations of Christmas are and that it's all about this, this birth, uh, to contrast that with so much work and, and writing about losing people? Is there, was there something interesting about writing about, about death and loss on a holiday that for some is about some kind of renewal or birth? Or is this something you've even considered? I feel more of that sort of sensibility with the winter solstice and the winter yeah. solstice, the longest night of the year being this in the like depths of midwinter, I feel like is a time of, for a lot of people of like soul searching and contemplation. And then simultaneously in lots of different cultures, it's a time of like families getting together and feast and, you know, kind of um, family becomes, I don't, I, I think that family is more at the forefront um, in terms of the different types of relationships that we have in our lives during uh, midwinter. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm like wanting to whisper because I don't want to talk trash about Catholicism and have my aunt here who's, <laughs> but um, then I was raised Catholic. I won't, I won't let your aunt uh, download this program, don't I? Okay, good. No, it's fine. She, she knows how I feel, but I'm still, I'm still speaking in hushed tones. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> you are you are in a wintry barn attic, so it's probably a good good place. Yeah, for it. yeah. All oh, the banisters are gone. I was going to tell an anecdote about the banisters in this room because we used to play the oldies station and dance with them, practice our dance moves when I was like eight. But with the banisters, but there are no they they've been removed from this room, so it's anyways. Um, but yeah, I I think with all of that, with like the the nights being longer and the heightened 
family presence there there is more of like a kind of time for spirituality or time to contemplate your your mortal self your place within the universe um, and like I talk in the album a lot about kind of the idea of snow as like this reset on the earth and how there's this kind of sense of I mean like that happens in New Year's too you know everyone with their New Year's resolution but this sense of like okay this is an opportunity to become like a new you or to reimagine who the you snow are is like a world. purifying or cleansing kind of I feel like that dominant idea is something that I was thinking about a lot and um and that there's like a lot of sense of magic in winter like the way the world can be transformed like have you ever seen a tree after an ice storm or like grass after an ice storm when like all the individual blades of grass get coated in ice sure yeah I feel like those like wintry elements that can totally transform the appearance of every single part of the world it's it feels very magical um yeah. Well, there's also, and, yeah. And I'm just like looking out the window and <laughs> sure. right now while I'm sure. talking. So I'm like, yeah, it's really magical. There's, a, um, there's, I mean, there's also just an aspect literally to something like what you're describing where every blade of grass is frozen, where it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of reference to this on the record, but there's a lot of, you know, time just kind of being frozen or things just kind of becoming an image or becoming a tableau in yeah. a way that, that they don't outside of like a frozen winter landscape, right? So Renee, as you as you said, you know this this Yemba record um, deals with a lot of grief and a lot of loss. Um, I know that you you lost your father rather recently, and and you had some you had some other losses in the family over the last couple of years. Is that is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And and one of the songs on the record that I that I have really liked the most, or or maybe first really uh, kind of captured me is, is uh, Set Nice, which is a song your dad wrote. Is that right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the first motivation I had for an album after my dad's death was to do a whole covers album of his songs. Because my dad was a singer-songwriter in the 70s. He made a living as a touring musician for like 12 years. Like he did it. Um, and it's crazy too, like how different the music industry was then and how yeah, sure. he was, he was like on a touring circuit where he had like good income. Um, like, he and he could reliably just on go like back. musician income. Yeah. It, it's crazy. It's a rare, um, it's a rare beast these days for sure. Yeah. But on the other hand, the hurdles for doing studio recordings were so much higher than that. I mean, he has a lot of you know, just at home, like demo recordings of his songs, but he only has studio recordings of like three or four songs. Because mm. um, so, he was really a touring like circuit live musician. Yeah. Yeah. And, and things I mean, were a little bit, that, existed a little bit more separately back then, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, and it was like, it was such a considerable investment to go and like when he did record in a studio, he recorded in Nashville and he like, session musicians who like played with Bob Dylan and you know uh all sorts of fancy Nashville people mm -hmm. were like on it and it was a big deal but it was sure. like but very that, but he could only was, do it a couple times yeah yeah but anyways so he has just hundreds of songs and and I had started going through them with him before he died and trying to um 
figure out the lyrics to all his songs because he has these journals, but his handwriting is horrible. It's really hard to read. So I had already been kind of working with him on figuring out a way to like give his songs a new life. And I still hope to um, transfer. I have a bunch of his tapes that he like did at home recordings. I still want to digitize those. But um, after he died, uh, one thing that I was spending a lot of time doing was just kind of learning how to play his songs. And this one sat in ice. I decided I wanted to cover it because there were so many of the lyrics that resonated with my own experience. And it was also interesting to imagine my dad in that time of his life, because it seemed like, I mean, obviously this was like before I was around, but it seemed like it was like him as a single person mm -hmm. navigating the world as like a weirdo musician where everybody else has these like practical lives that make sense. There was a lot I identified with in it that was like a version of him that I never really knew. Yeah. And then, the, and I tried to record it and the first version I did of it just like didn't work at all. And I threw it out. Um, and this one, uh, I, I really wanted it to like be a piano song. And the first mm -hmm. version was like a piano song. It was like really plodding, like it just didn't have like vibes. Did he write and on on guitar mostly? He wrote both on piano and guitar. Um, or like the recording I have of it is on piano. Um, but then when I re-recorded it, I did it to a click, which is the first time I hadn't. And I did it with like a synth brass sound as like the main chord progression sound, even though there is piano on the song now. And it totally like took on a new life for me. And I really, I really like how it turned out. I, um, and even like there's, um, there's this like vocal riff in it that's like, ah, thing that doesn't exist in my dad's version. But that was like, after my friend Chris added the bass part, then I heard, I was like walking through the park and I heard it. Hmm. I was like, ah, that's what I need. So it was, it, it was so really it's like you also kind of you 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 kind of actively were were uh, collaborating with your dad in a way by hearing these arrangement parts and stuff, right? Yeah. I mean that's kind of a lovely a lovely outcome. Well, and then it's cool too because the whole album I recorded on my dad's piano, mm -hmm. which is in my house in El Paso now. But like this song, it's just cool to think that like he probably wrote this song on that piano, and then I there is piano on it. I did like overdub piano parts. Um, so I don't know. I feel like that's kind of sweet. It's like maybe special. I was channeling him and the unmanifested version of the song that he would have imagined if he had a full band to do it. Sure. And uh, maybe 21st century recording yeah, capabilities. He might have hated it though. Too. <laughs> He's like not shy about telling me when he didn't like a song. That's that's cool. My, my like uh, Lars, Lars. Oh, hello. Do you want to say hi to Sam? Hi, Sam. Aunt Pam, this is Sam. Hello, Hi, Sam. Aunt Pam, how are you? I'm getting ready for Christmas and it's snowing outside. Did I know, it looks Aunt incredible. Did she show you? She did. Merry Christmas. Oh, Merry Christmas to you too. God bless you. Yeah, you too. You mentioned the synth brass on Set Nice. Uh, listening to your record recently, you know, I was just kind of thinking about some of these, some of these oral signifiers of Christmas music, and and a lot of them appear on your record. Uh, a lot of bells. brass sleigh bells. Sleigh bells, you know, brass, and particularly, I feel like the the 
the orchestral brass has a real Christmas, you know, the, the horn, French and English horns and stuff. That's a real Christmas. Thing. We don't have any French horns on this record, but man, I would have loved to. I yeah. love French horns. Yeah, French oh, hornists are all very strange people though. So, you know, it could be. A I believe it. I don't really know any, but yeah. um, I wanted to tell you a factoid though about mm. the synth brass sound on Set and Ice. Because I have a couple of synthesizers, mm-hmm. but that synthesizer is my Kurzweil K2000, which maybe I played when I played with you. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But I bought that synth from Odell Mickens, mm-hmm. who is in the band The Tramps oh. of the hit Disco Inferno. And it was uh, yeah. their it was their studio synth. Wow. I didn't, I'm not and I, like a Craigslist in Brooklyn. He came to my house. I gave him a CD. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you got the Mickens connection. I don't so. think, yeah, I don't think there's any relation, but I should look into it. I don't know that much about my, my, you know, genealogy going back more than, you know, a little bit. He's African-American, not to say that you couldn't be related. You never know. Who knows? Odell Mickens. There's a lot of, a lot of black Mickens in America. Mm. The only other Sam Mickens I've ever heard of is the, is the black uh, college football coach. Every once in a while, I've gotten a couple DMs for him where people are like, hey, coach, uh, I need to talk to you about Trevor this weekend, you know, <laughs> and then I'll say, OK, I'll call you tomorrow. But, you know, I don't call him. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, what do you think? Because, OK, so the record, we can call it a winter record. We can Not call a purely, it a Christmas record. No, of course. Fine. Sure. No, no, no. But I'm just saying there's there's a lot of songs that deal, as you say, kind of with this winter space and feeling and and, um, you know, kind of cleansing or restarting and reflecting and grief and loss. And um, but there's also, you know, like a very peppy cover of I'll Be Home for Christmas, which is a weird song to begin with. Right. Which is to be. Well, it's a super depressing song, super sad for being such a yeah, such a like. Christmas classic like you know I guess I'm just asking what are your feelings about Christmas music as you said earlier you know it's it's kind of in some ways very passe you know do you have a relationship to it that you feel is totally rooted in nostalgia or do you think there's something that you respond to in the Christmas music that's elemental and can't really be described or what what is your feeling about that genre as a genre and why you kind of choose to keep engaging with it probably all of the above I love Christmas music I mean I get sick of plenty of Christmas music it I normally don't like the Christmas music you hear at the mall but there's a lot of terrible Christmas music sure but like I I'm not a fan of um simply having a wonderful Christmas time I could do without that one for the rest of my life me too. Well, and recently I like crossed some sort of threshold where I really don't want to hear that Mariah Carey song anymore, which I feel bad about because I know I remember really enjoying the sound of that song, but it's just like punishing now. Um, but it's like anything, you know, you get if you get assaulted with it too much out of sure. your control, like sure. when you have to be, and especially if it's like in unpleasant situations, like you're at the grocery store and it's really crowded and no one's wearing masks and it's a pandemic and they're like, blast you, Mariah Carey. It's like, get me out of here. I don't want to ever hear this again. Sure. Um, I love Mariah Carey, but um, no, (laughs) um, I mean, I've always really liked Christmas carols. Um, I grew up in choir that probably has something to do with it. Um, So it was like, 
very nostalgic in that way too, to like return over and over to the songs. And I think even growing up, you know, I mentioned I was raised Catholic, like the singing was always my favorite part of church. Mm. Um, and the Christmas songs you do in church are the catchiest ones. Like, mm. um, but yeah, as an adult, um, I've made Christmas mixes for like the past decade. Like I love unearthing good Christmas music because there's a lot of it out there, but also a lot of terrible Christmas music is what gets played. Yeah. Um, I used to take kids Christmas caroling when I lived in Brooklyn. Mm. It's really cute. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, are you guys going to be doing any caroling in uh, Bad Axe this year? Probably not. It's really cold. <laughs> mm. um, and the, the pandemic thing with Omicron, I think I'm not going to do it. Did you know? Are you familiar with the 90s? David Bowie starring video game called Omicron. Did you know no. about that? Yeah, it was the first thing I thought of when I heard about this Omicron variant. And it's, I never played it, but I remember when it came out because it was such a weird, interesting thing. Bowie is in it. Like he acts as one of the video game characters who kind of looks like David Bowie. He's like a weird in a, you know, in a, in the matrix kind of zone or he's in a weird computer world. Mm -hmm. But Bowie's in it. And then Bowie also wrote a bunch of original songs that are performed by a fictional video game band in the video game. It's like an RPG, you know? That's and really cool. Yeah, and it seems very weird. I never I never played it. It's like demonic computer or whatever, you know, mm. 90s sci-fi, but um, yeah, Omicron. Without you. I mean, I think it's also like, some of my earliest childhood memories are Christmas music, like my earliest musical memories. It's like Celine Dion, Anita Baker. What's his name? Steve Winwood. My dad would play <laughs> Steve Winwood. Like I'm talking like yeah. four or five. These are like my earliest musical memories. So there's some amount of like influence that that stuff has that to me doesn't feel avoidable. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm not fighting that. Yeah, sure, sure. No, you need to let it let it snow. Uh, well, Renee, do you have any any last uh, Christmas wishes or anything to tell folks about your? So, Ziemba is the music, obviously, uh, and and your new record is Unsettled Magic. Um, you also write, right? You're writing for the paper in El Paso, correct? Yeah, I write for El Paso Matters, which is a publication where I do a lot of like immigration reporting. Um, I have some Christmas wishes to make. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would like to extend this wish to you, Sam, and to anyone who watches this, um, that I wish you nourishing food and relationships and friendships where you feel able to be your brightest, boldest self and lots of love and comfort and joy in the new year and beyond. Those are my wishes. And for myself too. But please, yes. But like first and foremost <laughs> for you. Thank you, Renee. That's very sweet. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Much love to everyone in Bad Axe. Um, talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you.
Yeah. All right, here we go. So yeah, as I say, it's a Christmas puppy. Can you believe that? Hello, Thor. Hi, Sam, my old friend. Good to Who see I met you again. In Belgium. Belgium. Mm. That's where me and Sam first met. Mm. Is this a podcast, Sam? Indeed. Oh, Indeed. cool. It's a podcast. So people won't be seeing the Christmas puppy, but they'll hear all about it. Yeah. Um, so with me now, Thor you Harris. Could also, you know what? You could, you could, hold on. I just had another thought. You could, call, you could call it Hammer of Thor if it's about, um, it's sure. about home improvement and stuff. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, Thor, we'll, let's we'll get to that. So, um, great to be with you. Uh, one one quick thing I wanted to ask you before we get into the segment proper. I've heard the story about your name that you worked. Where do you work? A frozen yogurt place or something? And there were two Michaels. It's a it's a sandwich shop in sandwich Austin, shop. and it's hugely popular. It's called Thundercloud. Thundercloud. Yeah. And it's and they've always hired like the weirdest looking people in town. And they still are open. They still are, and they still hire the weirdest looking people in town. That um, criteria has changed. Hmm. Back in '85, it just meant a dude with long hair. Right. Now it can mean like you have face tattoos and piercings and and stuff. Sure. But they, they still- give, was Thor. So then was Thor? Were you? given the name Thor because it related to Thundercloud? No, uh, a guy there who was like the rare black punk rock dude. He was a black guy that was really into bands like Black Flag and what they what they back in the 80s called hardcore. Sure. Um, it was bad, just like, bad brains. Yeah, bad brains. His name was Ron Williams, and he just started calling me Thor because I was like a muscular blonde sure. dude. And um, and there were four guys there named Michael. So and we did a really fast-paced lunch rush where we needed to yell mm. to each other. And yeah. so the senior of the Michaels got to keep the name Michael. Mm. I don't remember his last name. He he was. He was an all right guy. <laughs> and what about the other two Michaels? Were they like one of them moved like a one of them moved, one? one of them moved like a robot? He mm. may have been in retrospect mm. a robot, but we called him C three PO. One his last name was Mac, so naturally he just got renamed Mac. And do you sure? And do you feel like you guys grew into your names a bit? Like did the C three PO guy end up? Uh, being like a bit of a, a nag and a real nervous type and always naysaying at the lunch rush and stuff like that. Man, I would like to know. I really did like C-3PO. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what he's up to. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll next time I'm out there, in addition to, uh, you know, whatever, Home Slice Pizza, I'll stop by the old oh, yeah. thundercloud. Home Slice is good. Uh, I also, of course... You know, Sam, for you podcast listeners, you don't know who we are, who or where we are. Sam's in LA. I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, it's my town. Long time Austin. Long time Austin. Practically, practically the mayor of Austin. Yeah, it's my town. It's not Elon Musk's town. That tourist, that tourist is here temporarily, but he'll fall like all the rest. 
or he'll escape to his uh, rockabilly paradise on on the um, Mars Planitia or whatever. Good riddance, <laughs> Elon. Take your weird kid with you and your. But you know, I'm in favor of electric cars. So sure. Well, you're named Thor. Oh, that was the thing I was going to ask you. So I, I I've heard that story about how you got the name at the at the sandwich shop, but. Do you feel like, I mean, you've kept it all this time. Do you feel like it, you, you have any kind of connection to, to the Thor concept or to any fictional Thor, or to any kind of, any of the tenets of Thordom at this point? Um, Beyond just being a big burly dude with long hair. Yeah, I, I think I do because for whatever reason, like there's a lot of big burly dudes, but Thor never exuded what I thought was toxic masculinity he's definitely masculine but he was mm. you know he had he was very justice minded and looking out for the little guy and uh you don't think of him as like picking on anybody who's undeserving and he's just a bit I, of a hedonist right he's just yeah, a bit he, of a yeah drunken carousing maniac yeah. but that's okay that's not the Which worst I thing I tried to be, I did not, I never had the mind for drunkenness or lots of drugs. Yeah. Just, you know, I'm too prone to depression, but yeah. But I do admire the hedonists. A lot of my, a lot of my heroes are kind of hedonists. Sure. So Thor, you're with us, you're with us today and I hope you'll be back again to, uh, to share with everyone, everyone listening, everyone listening today, tomorrow, down the you road. Listeners, listeners, I'm going to be a regular segment <laughs> on Sam's show. I'm going to tell you to fix shit around your house because the apocalypse is well underway. The planet is trying to get rid of, get rid of us. I just want to make sure you all got comfortable places to watch it unfold so so this segment we're going to be calling it either thor's improvements or the hammer of thor you guys you guys let us know what you all think yeah vote but vote. uh thor uh tell us tell us what you have for us this this week what i have for you this week so i live in texas nobody knows how to turn the main water main off to their house so I made a little instructional video on Instagram and Twitter last year telling Texans who were in a in a blizzard for the first time in our lives. Right. Yeah. Telling them how all, to all over the place. People are experiencing weather conditions that their whole cities aren't built for. Right. Exactly. The weird weather is on the move. You guys up north are going to get this punishing heat that we're used to and last summer we got the punishing freezing that we're we were nowhere near equipped to deal with and our governor is just a he's just like a total corrupt oil company shill you know he just he, he was absolutely no help to the people just you know just came out blaming you know green energy for the power shutdown which right. then we learned was absolutely a lie so i made a little video telling people how to turn their water off their water main off at their house and i'm gonna make a video for what i'm for what me and sam are gonna talk about here today too um 
So if, if, if you're not, if you're a very visual person, the video will end up on me and Sam, both of our Instagrams. Uh, my Instagram, I think is just Thor Harris. And my Twitter is Thor Harris 666. It'll be a really short little video, but a thing that has happened, which is good, is everybody has gone to on-demand water heaters. Not everybody, of course, you see a water heater. They're also called tankless water heaters. You, you do see it, a water heater with a tank, you know, from time to time. No, you see them. I think they're probably more, st still more of those, but they're from the olden days. Like two days ago, two days ago, by which I mean nine days ago, I took one out that had been installed in 1986. That's a right. real long time for a water heater to last. But yeah, anyway, it's a rarity for sure. Yeah, down here, our water is full of calcium. And so when you heat that up, the calcium bonds to anything, anything in its path. Um, and so they just, they fill up with calcium. Um, this one was full of calcium, but amazingly still working. It just started to leak. And that's the only reason I replaced it. But you'll see- Somebody a built a good water heater at some point 40 yeah. years ago. Yeah, they yeah. certainly did. And this one was a gas one too. And mm. so, and those uh, fail, those those tend to fail quicker than electric ones. Uh, another, uh, another thing, aside from, um, tankless water heaters that we're gonna see going on in our homes in the coming decades is nobody is gonna use any uh, combustible gases in their house anymore. Um, you're not gonna have a gas range. You're not gonna be able to say, now we're cooking with gas because you won't be. You'll be cooking with electric in the pretty near future. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll be able to get a gas stove if you want one but it'll just be a thing where you have like a tank of propane sitting there you're like a weird hobbyist or whatever. if you're yeah weird hobbyist but the mm -hmm. but for the most part we are racing the apocalypse to make our homes more uh earth friendly and going at running everything off of electricity is a big part of that so right. um th there eventually will be uh I don't know if there are yet, but there'll be tankless water heaters that are all electric. The one I had in the 90s was was really garbage. So I got rid of it. And I have a water heater with a tank now, but it sits in a wood shop. Um, so I'm glad not to have any open flames in that wood shop because it's, right. like, a, it's like a gunpowder factory back there. It's just... It's the most flammable place in the neighborhood. But so when you look at your tankless water heater, those of you who have them, maybe it maybe it hasn't gotten as cold as it's gonna get this winter. Um, but what I want you to know is that you, so what happened down in Texas, thousands of tankless water heaters all over the state they're mounted on the outside of the house, as I'm sure they are in California. Mm -hmm. They froze, and they and they in the inner tubing, which is copper, shattered, and they're just they're really hard to fix. Right. I I personally didn't. I wasn't offering to try to do surgery on anybody's tankless water heater. I just said, "Look, I'll replace it for you if you can even get one." 
it got really hard to get them. And, sure. and, and me and all the other plumbers in town were just driving around to all the places, buying all the copper fittings. Um, and there was a big rush on those. Those were hard to get. So what we people, listeners to Sam's podcast, what we have to get good at is buying these supplies before there's a big rush on them so that we can, you know, be prepared. Right. And that involves having a sense of all of the different things in your house and how they all could be adversely affected by extreme conditions, right? You know, I'm sure some reasonable plumber guy has a YouTube video up on how to drain my on-demand water heater, mm-hmm. but I'm gonna make another one. I'll make a, a, a one with some with some humor in it and some colorful language for y'all. <laughs> so for um, the late, maybe some drawings of uh, dick bats flying around. Yes. So yeah. so for the layperson, Thor. For the truly lay person, just describe the circumstances under which you're going to want to be turning off your water heater. Well, um, if it is below freezing for more than a couple of hours, and especially if you lose power at your house, because many of the nice ones have um, a, a freeze protection, but it's electric. And right. that's what, what happened in Texas is our power grid has been deregulated. So it just yeah. failed. Yeah. Thanks to Enron and George W. Bush. Um, God bless him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but if you're in a situation where your, your on-demand water heater is in a place that is freezing, you know, they're $1,000. So I, I personally would rather just turn it off overnight and drain it and then close it back up, turn it on in the morning when it warms up. Yeah. Um, and the way to drain it is going to vary from water heater to water heater. But a lot of them these days um, have two shutoffs, a shutoff for the line going in and a shutoff for the hot water coming out. Right. You just turn both of those off. And then above that, there will be two screw-on caps and and a valve. If you do still have a tank water heater, turn off the supply to it and open the little pressure valve. And again, I will make videos about doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Open the little pressure valve hook a hose up to it and drain it. You'll be amazed at what comes out of it. Mostly rocks, depending on where you live. If you live in central Texas, it'll be little calcium rocks that look right. just like Like lime. kidney stones, basically, that have formed in your, in your yeah, water heater. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, once you get it down, it's a li- you're gonna look at it and you're gonna see a lot of shut off things, shut off valves and things. Um, don't be afraid of those. You're not going to hurt it by turning something off. They don't have pilot lights. Mm-hmm. Um, they have electronic sparkers. You, but you don't need to mess with the gas shutoff. The gas shutoff, it should be clearly marked. But if not, it's the one that has the little uh, hose that looks like an, a, that's a ribbed hose. It's like an accordion kind of ribbed looking hose. Okay, yeah. And it should say gas inlet on it, but you don't need to turn that off. You don't, 
you don't need to do anything with it in order to survive a winter apocalypse like mm -hmm. the one we had last year in Texas. You can just leave that one alone, but if you turn off both the intake and the outlet and you have a place to drain it, it will take really just seconds and you'll save yourself a thousand bucks that And way. then you can just turn it back on once, once it's no yeah. longer freezing. Yeah, you close those those little clean out valves a lot. They have both a valve and they have little caps on them. What y'all need to do is take those little caps off and open those valves after you have shut off the two valves below those. Really, it's a pretty simple machine. What happens is cold water rushes into that on-demand water heater yeah. And then, and then it runs through these small, delicate pipes. Those are the ones that shatter if we um, are freezing for too long. And yeah. by too long, I don't mean very long. They, they will freeze and crack pretty fast if they're not kept warm um, by, you know, water. There is, of course, another way that does work if you leave your faucets dripping. Mm -hmm. but it is not as effective as just draining your whole house. And, um, right. you know, that's a, that's another topic that we could do on another day, how to drain an entire house. <laughs> sure, of, I'd like to know. Of water, yeah. And a lot of people in Texas would have benefited from that one had it come out the day before Valentine's Day last year. That was yeah. a Valentine's Day freeze if I'm was it I don't remember I that's, think, yeah I think and then how long were you were you out of power for an extended period Thor or? we had power because <clears throat> we live near a couple of hospitals mm. and even the cold-blooded people who run Texas for now so, they're making sure that the hospitals get power yeah they thought well let's keep the hospitals going because that'll be a bad PR it's a bad look job. yeah it's a bad yeah. look a bunch of people die in the hospital, but a bunch of people died, not in hospitals, but our power stayed on. I was just running around thawing stuff out for people and doing a lot of just turning stuff off because yeah. as, as the day would warm up, the frozen pipes would thaw out and just start spewing water. And that's when people would learn they had a problem. Yeah. So, and you know, like I said, like anyone with plumbing skills, just for like a month, was just um, all over town trying to uh, trying to keep up. It was a copper rush. It was a copper rush, yeah. big time. Okay, well, you seem to be in the meeting. So are, do you have a Zoom thing open somewhere? On your, are you, were you using your phone or your computer? Okay, so here we are. Are you in, do you, can you go back in there to that room? Yeah, go in there. See if you can unmute yourself. Because when, I think when you were in there previously, nobody else was there yet. I'm here. Well, no, I just heard you on the phone. So can you unmute the 
Zoom, yourself in the Zoom. Great. Great, so can you hear anything? From the meeting or from the phone? Can you, do you see a little button at the bottom with a microphone that says mute? Bottom left of the screen. Do you see a button anywhere that says mute with a microphone? I'm recording all of this, by the way. Um, Try it again. Oh, you're connecting to audio now, I see. Under her own powers. Oh, there you are. Well, hello? I've been saying to you, hello. All this time, I've been saying hello to you. I can hear you. Well, we couldn't hear you. Well, I, here I am. There you now are. I look like I'm just two little white shapes instead of a person. Oh, that's dark. Dark <laughs> feeling. I'm sorry. You do look like people. and You're, you're used look to looking like, like people. Yeah, but in today's I, in today's modern world, communicating <laughs> with your family at Christmas time, you just look like two little white shapes. Well, and that's how I look exactly. No, there I on. am, looking no, like two on. little white shapes. Yeah, I can see you. I can see Anna. Hi. Perfect. Hi. Nice to meet you. I have to you say, I'm, I'm so I'm so touched, Sam, that you invited me to come on with your mom. I oh yeah, it sure. It seemed like it seemed like fun. So <laughs> this mom, is like our. You, half decade tradition because we did one of these we did do ago. a christmas podcast yeah. on, a, on a different program that's true um so mom are you ready i'm here now with uh two uh friends and mothers uh my own mother carol sue mickens carol good evening hello good evening and and of course, uh, my old friend Anna Berry, who is a an artist and uh, uh, activist and uh, recent uh, um, what do you call it? Advanced degree recipient, Anna Berry. It's good to meet you, hon. Likewise. Well, I wanted to uh, I wanted to have a couple you couple of mothers on. Um, we could talk about some Christmas things. It's, it's of course, as we record this, just a couple nights to Christmas. Um, yeah. Also, uh, you guys are both current uh, Ohioans, if not native Ohioans, right? I mean, uh, oh. Anna, you're you living, living in, she's living in Jackson Township near Akron. I don't know where, near I mean, Akron? You're not yeah, very yeah, technically I'm in North Canton. Where are you? Medina. Oh, wow. We're neighbors. I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> Virtual neighbors. So you guys, so you guys, uh, you guys are flyover country, 
folks. You're, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're let's go, Brand. You're you're living in let's go, Brandon country. Yeah. Um, have you either of you, Anna or Mom, uh, experienced or seen any Gatorade shortages in your local uh, in your localities? Gatorade shortages. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have noticed. You should ask Mario. He's a Gatorade fan. Mm. I didn't realize that was something that was in short supply. Well, apparently, uh, well, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to this narrative, but but some of our uh, fellow country people do that, that Brandon himself has actually been um, manufacturing, conniving a, a Gatorade shortage in various red states to punish them uh, during the COVID <laughs> pandemic. I'm sure whatever Gatorade has been not on the shelves is just a byproduct of generally decrepit, you know, systems of infrastructure and so forth. But some think it's Brandon himself doing it to, to the Ohioans, for example. He's the Gatorade Grinch of 2021. <laughs> Uh, there, I be any color Grinch. That'd be yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't noticed any supply chain <laughs> issues or shortages in any of the mega stores. That's good to hear. No, plenty of cre- plenty of cream cheese and Gatorade and all the good <laughs> things that Americans need in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, all the yeah. treats. All the all the goodies. All the treats. Um, so uh, any, any particular uh, Christmas memories? Any, anything, you know, the good, the bad, the weird, any, any notable uh, vivid Christmases, you know, either in your own childhoods or, or in the uh, childhoods of your children? Hmm. Well, in my own childhood, it, it, uh, it was striking me a couple of days ago that my parents never wrapped presents. They just kind of, I went to bed on Christmas Eve and they just kind of put everything out like right there under the tree with no wrapping or anything. Mm -hmm. And so I would go out and kind of be like in shock, overwhelmed. And so for you guys, I always did wrap stuff and put the wrapped stuff under the tree because I think there's a there's something kind of fun about like shaking them to see if you can figure out what they are and stuff. Sure. You know? They're literal mystery boxes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Anna? I'm, I guess I'm a relatively new mom. My, my son is four. Um, and we tried not to do Santa Claus actually. Um, not overtly, just we kind of felt a little weird about the whole tradition like how he fits into things even though we both grew up with Santa Claus um but Kindred my son decided that he wanted to, that Santa Claus was real and that he wanted to do it anyways despite our best efforts so he, he, he would say yeah he would say do you think Santa Claus is real and I was like I don't know what do you think like, oh yeah he's yeah. real so you know uh, what I did Oh, they sorry. want they want to believe. Yeah, I feel like like Akira's been doing the same thing where he's a very cynical, you know, worldly uh, seven year old or whatever. <laughs> but he uh, he'll ask me. He'll be like, "Is the tooth fairy real, or is it just you, or whatever?" And I'm yeah. like, uh, yeah. 
you know, but he obviously wants to, he, he sent Santa a letter, even though he said, believes that Santa is not real, he did send Santa a letter that said, are you real? Yeah, I saw that. So, yeah, just, just cover your bases. Yeah, I mean. Just I mean in case. Yeah. <laughs> well, that brings me to, you mentioned Rankin-Bass. Uh, I'm curious to hear either of your, any, any particular favorite uh, Christmas films or, or Christmas uh, media? You mean in terms like an animated kind of thing? If if it's animated, then it's Charlie Brown. You like that? Um, a Charlie Brown Christmas, yeah. I think it's sweet. It's um, totally sweet. Otherwise, it's like Miracle on 34th Street I like. Uh, you know, it's a good but, one. Um, yeah. What about Gremlins? Are they happening at Christmas? Yeah. It could be any time, really, but it is a it is, does take place at Christmas. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, who knew? I actually uh, just look. I just looked up the rating or the recommended age for Gremlins um, mm -hmm. because that was the first movie that I ever saw in the theater oh. when I was four. Mm -hmm. But it, I spent the majority of the time turning the other way into the seat mm -hmm. and not really watching the screen. Um, mm -hmm. Recommended age is ten. Yeah. <laughs> Gruesome scene. Yeah. Scooby Doo is still a little too scary. There's some gnarly yeah. stuff in Gremlins. They yeah. melt. Yeah. They melt yeah. a gremlin. They do the microwave. A, they, they put a gremlin yeah, the in the microwave. blender. There's, yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's grim. <laughs> yeah. So like it was a little bit more accepted in the eighties to be that gory. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I saw Gremlins when I was two, but. Uh... <laughs> No, I don't know. What? I don't know if that's true. I, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I have very, very vivid memories of just as an infant, just sitting in front of Hellraiser just over and over again. And, uh, <laughs> explains a lot of things. Yeah. No. Um, Anna, any, any, any Christmas uh, film? You know my affinity for Die Hard, but Die Hard is definitely, it's, it's become a whole Etsy thing now. Mm. It's, it's definitely more mainstream accepted as... Oh, in Christmas, Christmas craft world. Christmas craft, yeah, for sure. Um, Mom, any uh, any Die Hard takes? You've seen Die Hard. I've seen the first one, yeah, with Alan Rickman one, but I haven't seen any others. Um, and I, I like Die Hard fine. I wouldn't ever consider it a Christmas movie, but I like it fine. Again, though, it definitely takes place at Christmas. Well, that uh, fine. <laughs> you, you remember he said, uh, I, I won't say it right now, you know, but he said, uh, ho, 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 etc. Oh, MF, yeah. Well, I, I, th I thought he said, yippee ti I yo that. He he's also he says, yippee, yippee ki yeah. yo I like your mom's version better. Yeah, that one's yeah. good too. Yeah. So what else? Ohioans, what's the weather like out there? I, I spoke to somebody earlier on the program uh, in Battle Axe, Michigan, where it was a it's a it's very like in the twenties today. But is it, it was is like it a snowy, beautiful nah. wonderland? No. 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 Missing something nice. Hmm. All right, guys. Well, we can wrap it up. I think, you know, I think we've got well, some good no, stuff. I wanna, you know how old you're going to be this year? Bye-bye, honey. What'd you say? You What'd know you say? how old you're going to be this year? How old I'll be? About, yes. Me? Yes. I already had my birthday this year. You mean next year? No, I mean in 1922. 
Yeah, 2022. I do know how old I'll be. Yeah, sure. Well, me too. That's pretty shocking. And do you know how old I'll be, by the way? Yes. I don't. I don't. I I don't. You can tell Anna. (laughs) You can tell me how old everybody's going to be. be 40 in February. I cannot believe it. I mean, think of what, think of your little boy being 40 someday. Lordy, lordy. God's wounds. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to be drumming. Yeah, in two weeks, I'm mm. going to be 75. Bang Yuck. On. I'm <laughs> 75. No, it's fine. You look great. Come on. Well, Medina. Are some of them lagged? Are some of them lagged? Yeah, are they lagging? No, they're fine. No, they're fine. <laughs> they're awake. Really? Um, so, yeah, yeah. The let's go the let's go Brandon thing that's I know that that's like really prevalent but I don't I w- I had to look it up actually um and well, I think it's it's something we can all unite on you know I mean <laughs> my friends neighbors have like the Trump as Rambo sort of mm, uh, artwork flags and yeah oh, artwork yeah. yeah that's good like <laughs> yeah. Trump that's super jacked yeah that's great yeah, yeah. well mothers is great having you here tonight on this first program. Anna, it was nice to, uh, Good to see uh, echo this tradition of the Christmas podcast uh, yeah, visit. Like a call back. Um, do either of you have any uh, Christmas wishes you'd like to extend out to the uh, to the listeners tonight before we before we say goodbye? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Mom, Anna, Anna's, Anna's begged off of this, but uh, if you would indulge me, uh, what? we're just going to sing a little song to take the, the program out. You know this song, right? I don't you hear know this? It. I can't hear it. It's an old line thing. You know this, right? I can't hear this. Sign. Why don't you just tell me what the song is? 